Amen. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Numbers, excuse me, Numbers uh, uh, chapter 22. Now, uh, I've emphasized uh, praying for Sister Mitchell. Make sure you do that uh, tomorrow morning when you pray. Uh, pray for her, for Pastor Mitchell uh, and the Prescott Church for that, uh, for that need. And I know that they're going to feel that and appreciate that very much. Um, go ahead and put that picture up now and turn some of these lights off so that it can be a little clearer. I want to preach, as I said to you this morning, the overcoming the urge to compromise. It's a powerful urge. And most of us are sitting here tonight having over the years or more recently succumbed to the urge to compromise and you're left with today less than God's best for your life. This is a photograph of a phenomena in nature that God created for my purpose tonight so that I could use it to illustrate. This is a banyan tree. I've seen these before. I've seen quite a large one. And it is unusual in all of nature. It's actually known by another name, the strangler fig. And what is unique about this tree is that the seeds of it are carried by birds and they are deposited in the upper branches or on leaves of existing trees. And with moisture, the right temperature, without soil, without having been buried in the soil, they're able to bud and they begin to grow. And what they do is that their roots begin to travel down an existing tree trunk. They travel down that tree trunk because they're on a hunt for soil. They have to have nutrients, but it takes quite a while. With moisture and rain, those roots grow. And then they find the soil, and then they begin to grow, and they begin to grow strong. And what they do, it's called the strangler fig. And its objective In the first uh, uh, stages of this tree's life, uh, it has to suck out the nutrients of the existing tree and then destroy the root system of that existing tree. And you, I don't know how well you can see it, but inside it looks kind of like lattice work there where those roots intersect with each other inside of that lattice you can see the trunk of an existing tree that is now dead tree that once had life tree that was once vibrant one seed of compromise that looked harmless was deposited in the upper branches And it was able to remain there long enough for it to to do its deadly 
work. This illustration was used in a book of illustrations, and it finished its commentary by saying in a similar way, as the seeds of creeping compromise are tolerated in God's church, in our spiritual life, our fruitfulness is being sapped away. So you can take that picture off, pop the lights back on. At what point do you think you would be willing to compromise? And what would you be willing to compromise over? What is negotiable in your life? Now, your immediate question might be, or answer might be, Pastor Stevens, I will never compromise that which matters, that which is important, that which is sacred, that which is holy, that which I love, that which is pleasing to God. But I think all of us know that that's probably not the case in most of our lives. The point that you're willing to compromise is going to be discovered. That's what Satan is a master at. There can be a thousand no's to compromise and then one yes, he'll work his way through those thousand no's, uh, knowing that eventually he's going to get to a yes. And the fact is, as we are here tonight, to a large degree, it could be that your life is no longer framed by the principles, the standards, and the high ideals that they were once framed by. And any one of us can be an expression of a deteriorated version of our former self because at some point there was a yes. And we compromised and a seed was planted and the problem with compromise is that it has a very long shelf life. It has a consequence way beyond the beginnings of compromise. It grows just like that seed of the strangler fig. It begins to grow and it has the ability to strangle fruitfulness in life. Someone said about compromise that compromise is changing the question to fit the answer desired. It can happen in any area. It can happen in your relationship with Christ, your faithfulness to his church, to your calling and ministry, to righteousness and obedience. It can happen in your marriage. It can happen in finances. Uh, there are so many points and components that make up our lives where Satan is going to test. When can he get a yes? How much pressure? How much temptation? How much hardship? How much opportunity does he have to present? Uh, how patient does he have to be before he gets a yes to compromise? A working definition, before I read our text, for 
compromise is very basic. And we're going to learn tonight that compromise can be a very good thing in your life. Compromise is an agreement reached by making a concession to expediently accept standards that are lower than what is desirable, of course, would be a more negative uh, definition. So let's get to our text. We're going to examine a Bible character that uh, exemplifies this. And I think we can find ourselves in the narrative of Balaam. And this altar is going to be in front of us tonight as a place to come and uh, let God help us. Balaam was sought by a king to curse the people of God. He was offered great wealth and great riches. He initially said no way, but he eventually said yes. After temptation, after time, after patience, after multiple offers, after rationalizing another way, to get around God's standard and God's command, he eventually completely compromised. I don't know how much of this text I want to read, but I'm going to begin in verse 5 of Numbers chapter 22. So follow me as I read it aloud. Amen. There we go. Then the king sent messengers to Balaam at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call Balaam, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. These are the people of God. See, they cover the face of the earth. They are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once and curse this people, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee. So they're going to Balaam with money in their hand, and they want him to curse the people of God. And so they go to Balaam, and they spoke to him the words of King Balak. And Balaam said, Lodge here tonight, and I'll bring word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, and then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men? Balaam said to God, Balak, king of Moab, has sent me to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. That's it. Don't go. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose, said to the princes of King Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. So all is good. But listen, the devil's not finished. With all of your no's and refusals, not done. Then the princes of Moab rose, went to Balak, and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes, more numerous, more honorable. And they came and said, Thus Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming. I will honor you greatly 
I will do whatever you say to me. Please come, curse this people for me. Balaam answered and said, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. That was his first blunder. God's already spoken. No need to pray anymore. You already know what to do. But the devil's found a button to push, and the button is materialism and wealth and money and his love for those things. So he says, please stay here tonight. Let me pray again. And God came to Balaam at night and said, if the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, went with the princes of Moab. And then God's anger was aroused because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary. And he was riding on his donkey and the two servants were with him. So let me, let's just finish there and perhaps we'll read a little bit more of the story. Let's talk about the test of compromise. It would be very, very nice if the highest level of godly standard for your life was never tested. The ideals that you established for your marriage, love, Sickness, health, till death do us part. Always love, always forgiveness, always togetherness, always communication. It'd be nice if those ideals of yours were fixed permanently on the day that you decided and established them. It would be nice if the highest level of godly standards would just simply remain in place unmolested for the duration of your saved life here on earth, that the high standards that you established for your relationship with God, no sin, never compromise, always faithful, and then your ministry, I'm going to serve no matter if I'm appreciated and valued, I'm going to serve and be involved and be a part and make a contribution no matter what through thick and thin, wouldn't it be wonderful if the high standards that we establish in our enthusiasm when something is getting started would never be molested, always in place, always adhered to. Most of us can be very firm and very decisive and very sincere at the altar. We're under conviction. God is dealing with us. We're moved on by the Holy Spirit. 
were in a spiritually energized atmosphere at the altar. The Word has been preached. The Holy Spirit, we have worshipped. We have given. We have spoken in tongues. And we come to the altar and we make these radical decisions for our lives that are intended to set things in motion that will remain in place. And hardly by the time we get out the door, sometimes the testings of life slam us. Are you going to compromise what you decided at the altar? Are you going to settle for less than God's best? That question and the answer to it is going to be discovered by Satan. He's going to test and tap and ring your doorbell and knock a 100,000 times. He didn't accept Balaam's no. Came back again. And then again and again and again until there was a total collapse. Our problem, mine as well and yours, is not deciding to do what's right. We can do that. We can do that easily. We have a conscience. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit that talks to us about love, about forgiveness, about resisting temptation, and all of those things. Our problem isn't deciding to do what's right. We can make a a mental ascension to do what is right. The problem is carrying out what is right over time as our decisions and our standards and our high ideals come under testing, and come under assault. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples in the garden after he told them to watch and pray? And they said, yes, Pastor, yes, watch and pray. And then they fell asleep. And Jesus said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And that flesh of ours... Is willing to compromise, give it enough pressure, the right situation, the right circumstance, the right opportunity, we become willing to compromise. Paul even wrote about this. Romans chapter 7, he said, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So he's confessing to the presence of flesh at work in his life. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. So this is a common struggle. You seek to establish godly standards in your heart, in your life, in your family, in your situation, in your circumstances. And then come the testings of life that will put your integrity to the test, your prayer life, your faithfulness, your ability to love, your ability to forgive. We're thrust into this incredible battlefield. So let's examine for a moment the example of Balaam. Balaam is a fascinating character. There's never a time when I don't read through the three chapters that cover his story. It's quite a, uh, from a biblical standpoint, it's quite a long uh, narrative of his life. Three whole chapters 
uh, in the book of Numbers, which is really about the sojourn uh, of the children of Israel. That's primarily what, is it, what it's about, but it, it gloms on to this man Balaam and the incident that took place uh, uh, surrounding his life and circumstances. He's mentioned nine other times in the Bible. He's referred to, of course, uh, never in a good context. Uh, he's referred to uh, nine other times outside of the story in other books uh, uh, of the Old Testament. Uh, and he's referred to three times uh, in the New Testament, one time by Jesus himself in the book of Revelation. So that's interesting. And that makes his life worth examining. He has a very curious history. He's a Midianite. That's a nation that opposed the children of Israel. It's a nation that the children of Israel defeated during their wandering in the wilderness. And as a matter of fact, after this incident takes place is when the final climactic battle took place uh, between the children of Israel uh, and the Midianites. Uh, And the Bible says uh, that the children of Israel killed uh, the kings of Midian, uh, and it names them, uh, and they also killed uh, Balaam with the sword. In Unger's Bible Dictionary, it refers to Balaam as a heathen diviner who lived at Pethor which is said to have been a city of Mesopotamia. Although doubtless belonging to the Midianites, he possessed some knowledge of the true God and acknowledged that his superior, uh, his superior powers as a poet and prophet were derived from God and were his gift to him. His fame was great. He was very well known, known by kings, summoned to the court of kings, but... It's very evident that he became very conceited and very covetous. Balaam is a curious mix of a man that knew God, could hear from God, knew to do right, and took steps to do what was right, but he could also compromise. How would we describe this man? Let's make an effort. And this is what I came up with. First of all, I think we can describe Balaam as a man with his feet in two worlds. As I said, he had some knowledge of and respect for God. God talked to him, and he recognized the voice of God to the point where he started to obey God. He had conviction. He had some Relationship Again, it's a very curious relationship because he's a Midianite, not a Jew, not one of the children of Israel, part of the enemies. But somehow, we don't have the history before this, made a connection with God somehow and had some favor with God and some relationship. But he had the other foot firmly ensconced in the world. He loved money. He could be bribed. He had a desire to advantage and to enrich himself, and that became what trumped obedience and relationship with God. And probably, along with that, he really did want the favor of the king. He didn't want to be out of favor with King Balak. He wanted favor, and so in order to gain favor, 
He was willing to compromise what God had told him to do. And I think Balaam, the reason his narrative is in the Bible is because he is a type of many people today. He acknowledges God. He will conform to his will because he comes under conviction. He has a conscience. As I said, God speaks to him and he hears. But along with that, he has a heart that can be persuaded into compromise. Slowly, over time, even in the face of initial refusals, what could be better than how this all started? The king bribes him, come and curse. He prays. God says, don't you dare. No, you're not doing that. They're a blessed people. Balaam immediately marches back to the king's emissaries, said, no, get out of here. Go tell your king not doing it. All good. But it simply masks the fact that he has a heart that it, you know, you push enough buttons, make the right approach, He's going to compromise, and the devil knows this. He's got one foot in God's kingdom, one foot in the world, and he can be responsive to both. Doesn't that describe a lot of us? We have flesh. We have carnality. We can be tempted. People can sin. We can get angry. We can be unforgiving. We all have flesh. And that flesh can be appealed to, but we also have a spiritual dimension, and we are responsive to God. We come to church. We hear the Word of God. We answer altar calls. There's part of us that wants God and more of Him, and we see both of these elements at work in the life of Balaam. This is how Peter writes about Balaam. He's talking or writing in 2 Peter, and he says, They have forsaken the right way. In other words, they were on the right way. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. They're on the right way, but they were persuaded, and they could be persuaded to get their foot traveling in the wrong direction. That's describing people who know the right way, have been on the right way, but there's a weakness, uh, there's an element of their heart uh, that can be appealed to, uh, and through that weakness uh, or that particular pet sin uh, or that particular attribute of their character, uh, Satan will discover it uh, through maneuverings uh, and various testings, uh, and then he'll glom onto it and work that until compromise happens. And then in the book of Jude course, also in the New Testament, he writes and says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So that's a little more extreme. These are people that are willing to compromise uh, in a more extreme fashion. Uh, usually it's all rationalized. Uh, rebellion has a mask uh, and is always cloaked uh, with spiritual explanation. Uh, but he says uh, here uh, that the way of Balaam is, uh, he calls it the error of Balaam, uh, and it's the possibility that you can be seduced into an extreme situation. 
Now, we have to say, don't we, that Balaam is alive today. He's alive in us. It refers to any person who compromises God's highest standards for any reason. On the surface of our text, and it's quite, I mean, it took me quite a few years to really get my head wrapped around this text. On the surface, it looks like Balaam is obeying God. And even after he wrongly goes uh, with the emissaries of the king and then meets the king uh, and then stands uh, and sees the people of God, uh, and then the king says, okay, now go ahead and curse. Uh, He doesn't curse them. He pronounces a blessing over them, and the king gets mad. But he's already compromised. It's just a matter of time before he goes all the way. And it doesn't tell us what he ultimately does until a further chapter past where the narrative of Balaam ends. And in Numbers 25, this is what he did. Then Israel remained in the Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab, and Moses said to them, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So what does that mean? It means that Balaam finally went to the king, and I'm reading between the lines, but he went to the king and counseled him and said, Look, Balaam, I cannot curse the people of God. But if you want to destroy him, here's what you can do. Get the babes of Moab dressed up in mini skirts and six-inch high heels and send them among the young men of Israel and they'll fold like a cheap suit. They'll commit harlotry. God will judge them and that'll be the way that you could. That's what he did. There's a corruptible element in his heart that can be exploited. And then Jesus picks up the narrative about Balaam and said to the church, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Pretty wicked, isn't it? Pretty extreme. How did it all start? With a little tiny seed planted in the upper branches of a tree. Harmless, small, not going anywhere. Pastor, you know me. I'll never quit coming to church. I'll never do this. I'll never. Once you start saying that, you're on your way to that. So let's look at the danger that's here. Now, let me begin this point by saying that every one of you, under the sound of my voice, is a compromiser. And I mean that in a good sense. It's necessary. Compromise 
is necessary. Compromise is part of our lives. It's the only way to successfully navigate through life. You're going to have to, at times, compromise. Compromise is useful. Compromise can be helpful in achieving our goals. We use it almost daily. This is what negotiation is all about in business. Somebody has a product, you want to buy it, he has a price, you have a price, and so somewhere along the line, there's going to be compromise so that a deal can be made, and that can be a good thing. Nothing wrong there. We can benefit from compromise. Remember the definition that I gave in the introduction, an agreement reached by making a concession. Nothing wrong with that. You may compromise buying a house. You say no more than $175,000. That's our budget. And then we've got another $10,000 in reserve that we're going to use to fix it up. And so you go start, and then you find the house of your dream. And they want $185,000 for it. So that is your 175 and your 10. And so you think, what am I going to do? Everything about this house is what we want. Your wife is doing backflips. She wants to do the deal now. The guy's thinking a little more rash. And so you come back and you say, look, we have got to have a little money to fix this place up the way we want it. It's beautiful the way it is, but few things. So we'll give you 180,000. He says, okay, I'll think about it. You go away, you're praying, and you come together, and you agree. That's compromise. You compromised, he compromised, and you're both happy. What is marriage? It's two stubborn people that can only get along if there's compromise. There are things... You would rather do places you would rather go, but for love's sake, you capitulate. And you say, okay, we'll do what you want yet again. Huh? Doesn't that happen? And you're hoping that you'll be rewarded for that compromise down the road. People that are unwilling to compromise can have a lot of problems in life. Whenever we do something other than what we would prefer to do, it's a compromise. Now, this may be a little bit of a stretch, and you may not like me putting Jesus in this context. But can we say that he compromised when in the garden he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. That's his preference. He's stating what his preference is. He's God, but he's a man, and he's going to suffer mightily, more than any man. If it's possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's compromise. Not your preference. So here's what, here's, here's 
Here's where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Life is all about discerning what can be compromised and what can never be compromised. You can compromise on going to the restaurant that she wants to go to. I'm not going to kill you. You're not going to die. You've got to humble yourself. You're not always the boss like you think you are. Not worth starting World War III. Right? Every married couple, you've got to pick your battles, don't you? What are we going to contend? Is, is this worth a fight? Is this worth getting nasty and mean and angry with each other? Of course not. So you've got to decide in life what can be compromised and what can never be compromised. And our problem is we get the two mixed up, all jumbled up in a big mixed up mess. And we become unwilling to compromise with things that we should compromise on. It's not worth fighting over. And then we compromise things that we should never compromise. And the fact is that some things cannot be compromised without destroying them. I want you to think about that. Some things cannot be compromised without destroying them. That little seed up in that tree, left alone, left to itself, is going to destroy that tree if it remains in place and starts growing. And so you have to decide what those things are. What's going to be destroyed if you compromise? Once you start down the road of compromise, you can't maintain the integrity you can't t maintain the high standards uh, of God's ideal uh, in certain areas of your life. Once you start compromising with your faith, uh, in your marriage, uh, in your relationships, in your ministry, in your relationship with God, once you start compromising with sin, something's going to be destroyed. Some things have to be protected from the death-bearing nature of compromise. Remember the story of Solomon? When he got wisdom, his first case that came to him was two women, two harlots that both had gotten pregnant through their harlotry and had children. And in the middle of the night, one of the babies died. And the mother of the baby that died took her dead baby, put it with her uh, roommate, uh, the dead baby, and then took the live baby. And then the next day claimed that, oh, your baby died. How sad. And the woman knew, of course. I mean, you know what your baby looks like. So they bring this mess to Solomon. There's no eyewitnesses. It's one woman against another. And, uh, and so this is the story. Then the women, woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, this is after Solomon said, bring me a sword. I'll cut the baby in half, and then you each take half. And so the woman, that got a reaction from the mother, and she said, no, don't do that. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. 
She's the mother. The woman who was willing to compromise the child would have been a death sentence over that child. Her first preference was kill the baby. And she was revealed to be the liar, the one unwilling to compromise the life of her son, her child, proved that she was the mother. Some things can be right now in the process of being destroyed once you go down the road of compromise. That's why things like passion, burden, vision, are serving spirit and instinct. Those things can die. And I've watched it. And this is part of the explanation for one of my greatest frustrations to watch uh, individuals uh, come off the cutting edge uh, on fire, powerful conversion, uh, serving in ministry, uh, and then along the road uh, they start compromising, uh, lose vision, lose compassion, lose love, uh, lose zeal, lose faithfulness, uh, lose that serving instinct, uh, and it's nearly impossible to recapture. Compromise destroys what it touches. Can destroy what it touches. And so we have to come to the conclusion that some things are not negotiable. And we make a grave error in life when we slide the non-negotiable into an arena of that which can be compromised. You think about the dynamics of Balaam's thinking. Compromisers have a very active, rationalizing, justifying thought life. They figure out a way to live with themselves and disobey God. They figure out a way to spiritualize their compromise. And that's what Balaam's doing. He never did curse the people of God, at least not in the way that Balak wanted him to. He came up with another idea. So he gets the wealth, doesn't curse the way uh, Balak wanted him to, uh, finds another way around and uh, probably feels pretty good about himself. Three areas can't be compromised. Your relationship with Christ, of course, is first and foremost. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. This is the first commandment. That's not something that can be compromised or negotiated lest you destroy your relationship with Christ altogether. And people are constantly compromising all your love, first priority, highest level of commitment and passion should be after Jesus, serving Him, pleasing Him, thinking about Him, doing His will, accomplishing His purpose for your life. We're literally supposed to be obsessed with Jesus. Jesus in the morning, Jesus at noonday, Jesus at night. It was David who wrote that you're going to hear my voice in the morning at noon and in the evening. And he was obsessed. And this is something that can't be compromised. Secondly, the will of God. Matthew 6, 33, seek first 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. But how often is the pursuit of money put before the pursuit of God's will? That's what the rich young ruler did. That may be the very thing that Demas did. They put the world and they put the pursuit of money before the will of God. Seek first, always, at all times, in every circumstance, in every situation, no matter what comes calling or beckoning or threatening or challenging, it's the will of God above all else. And of course, you can't compromise with sin. Deuteronomy says, it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. That's the reward for your obedience. You get dominion in life. But it shall also come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes. We've lost that, and we do lose that sometimes. The carefulness that we need to exercise about obedience, carefulness about our thoughts, our words, our actions, our interaction with people and individuals, how we conduct ourselves in relationship to our money, and how we conduct ourselves at work and Excuse me, in marriage, in ministry. And so he's saying here that you need to take great care about obedience. Observe carefully. Walk with caution. Live carefully. Remember, this is not something that you can afford to compromise with. So let me close by talking about overcoming the urge to compromise. Because it's just that. That's the best title I could come up with. It's the most accurate title I could come up with. Overcoming the urge. It's a powerful impulse that resides in each and every one of us. And again, your spiritual adversary, Satan, is going to put you to the test uh, trying to discover what buttons he needs to push to get a yes from you. So this is an area we have to learn both caution and awareness because compromise is so subtle. It comes in such a small, unassuming, seemingly harmless package. It's a seed on a leaf way up in a tree. But if it remains there, that tree is going to eventually die. The word for that is incrementalism. Not one big step over a cliff, but a lot of little ones. And with every little step we take, we get used to that level of compromised atmosphere. And then we say, no, no, no more. I'm this is as far as I'm going. And then a little time we get more comfortable. And we don't see the harm really in taking another step and then another and then another. And pretty soon our life is compromised. Our ministry, our relationship, our integrity has been compromised. And I think probably the best example of this is Samson. He got used to compromise. And the trouble with compromise is uh, that, you know, 
we, 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 we don't uh, uh, turn into a grease spot, uh, uh, the first indication of taking a step in a wrong direction. We make a decision, and, uh, and nothing bad happens, and it seems okay, it seems cool, and we make that decision. But the problem is that step leads to another and another, and this is what happened to Samson. And Delilah said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And so she awoke, uh, he awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as before as at other times, and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That's what happens. Further and further away from integrity. Further and further away from close, intimate relationship with Christ. Further and further, more and more detached. The more further away you get from someone, the less you miss him. He didn't even know that the Lord had departed from him. So the safeguards, three very quickly. You better get what can be compromised and what can't be compromised figured out and you can see. Because to them it feels comfortable, but when you stay close to God, compromise is very uncomfortable. It's not so easy. You have a level of discernment that you need. Stay close to Jesus in prayer. Stay close to Jesus by faithful church attendance. Stay close to Jesus by being in his word every day. Read his word. Meditate on his word. And I think that breeds and builds a sensitivity. The other thing is that when you value something, you're less likely.